Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast Pressurized, a short, punchy version of our full-length shows. So if you want to get right to the scientific point, this is the place to be. If you really enjoy the topic and you think, actually, you know, I'd like to know more, just match the episode number and you'll be able to find the full-length episode in our feed. And now, to get right to the point. It's been a busy week. I found the deepest fish in the world, Tom. The deepest fish is now 8,336, a species of Pseudolaparis. But genetically, they're all so close together that it's still looking a bit iffy if your snailfish and this snailfish and the Japanese snailfish are actually all the same thing. It's really hard to do genetics on snailfish. Anyway, so yeah, it's been a busy week doing that. Uh, it's not what I plan to do. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, it was good though. Got decent coverage. People seem to like a good little snailfish story from time to time. On the sort of political side of things, after 10 years of discussion, the High Seas Treaty has finally been agreed upon, which overall aims to protect the world's oceans, as, as vague as that sounds. And so the one of the main issues was the sharing of marine genetic resources, which we touched upon in our bioprospecting episode. Actually, how difficult that is to be. They are maybe the greatest source of future medicines and antibiotics, but it's actually a bit of a legal quagmire with how you actually go about that. So they're biological materials for plants and animals that can benefit society. And that includes industrial processes and food as well as just pharmaceuticals. Basically, who benefits from that? Who then can receive that money? Who owns something that has just evolved naturally that happens to be within a certain border? So the key points surrounding these talks is the issue of sort of trust and solidarity between developing and developed nations and developing nations offering the sort of tech and resources to search for these new ocean resources, but also sort of helping developing nations who don't yet have that capacity, but also falls within their waters. It's the early stages right now. It is really exciting that this has finally been agreed upon, because like we say, it has been 10 years, but it is still with the lawyers. Is that right, Alan? It's still being hammered into shape. I think so. It's hard to get details on this right now, because I think it has to go and get checked and double checked. But everyone seems very happy, though. Biological resources, marine genetic resources are quite a big thing. Deep sea is a hotbed of microbial bits and bobs that do interesting things. Uh, but do you know where a lot, a lot of them live, Tom? These funky bacteria. Is it maybe an area that is often overlooked and we should maybe cover as part of our very loosely defined series on deep sea habitats? It's overlooked in many ways. It's overlooked actually visually because it's hard to see in this particular environment. And it's overlooked just generally scientifically because it's quite a hard thing to, to do. But there is a whole other environment on the planet which is potentially the biggest environment on the planet and it's not the deep sea so we're going to talk to someone today about deep biosphere which is what happens when you go down under the seafloor and what kind of weird stuff you find in there and including oil wells as well we should stop rambling and give somebody a phone who are we going to talk to who are we going to call we're going to call mandy joy from university of georgia she knows all about this stuff Uh, today we have Mandy Joy, who is an American oceanographer and professor at the University of Georgia in the Department of Marine Sciences. And her research has contributed hugely to the field of ocean biogeochemistry and focuses broadly on the relationship between biochemical cycles and microbial ecology. She's also well known for her work studying the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. So welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, Mandy. Thanks, Alan. Happy to be here. 
Great. So while your research is obviously very expansive, today I'd like to chat about the deep biosphere. Uh, and that's a term which is not necessarily known by a lot of people. So let's start with definition. What is the deep biosphere? Where is it? And what size is it? So the deep biosphere is an incredibly vast ecosystem. It's easily one of the largest, if not the largest on Earth. It is starting at seafloor, going down to the depths where microbes no longer exist. And that depth varies as a function of temperature and pressure and other environmental factors, but it's an incredibly important habitat for microbes on Earth, and they carry out a lot of important processes that contribute to regulating biogeochemical cycles globally. So this is everything underneath the seafloor, but we always think of the greatest depths of the oceans and the polar regions hosting, in inverted commas, extreme conditions. But this particular living space is home to things like bacteria and archaea, and they are enduring very extreme conditions. So talk us through like things like oxygen, temperature, and pressure, and how that changes once you get below the seafloor. Sure. So if you're in, you know, a thousand meter water column, that's a hundred bars of pressure. And as you go down into the sediment column, the pressure just increases more and more and more. But then instead of being in just an aqueous fluid, you've got sediments and pore fluid. So that sediment's getting compressed. So it actually compresses the pore fluid, which minimizes the amount of microbial habitat available and the pressure itself stresses the organisms that are there. In addition to, to the inherent stresses of pressure, there are also geothermal gradients that occur in sediments. So the sediments are warming as you go down. So temperature from the top of the ocean surface to the seafloor decreases, right, as you go from top yeah. to bottom. As you go from the seafloor, deeper beneath the seafloor, the temperature increases. And that geothermal gradient can be pretty shallow. It can be pretty steep in some places like the Gulf of California or mm. anywhere where there's active um, tectonics. You can actually have hundreds of degrees centigrade you know, within a few hundred meters of the seafloor. So temperature is a stressor. Pressure is a stressor. Oxygen is rapidly consumed in sediments, so they become quickly anaerobic and anaerobic metabolisms kick in because there's no oxygen. And you've got all kinds of different ecological niches that open up as you move through this cascade of electron acceptors. We breathe oxygen. Microbes can breathe sulfate. They can breathe iron. They can breathe nitrate. They can, they can breathe a number of different electron acceptors, you know, compared to us and our, our measly little one that is oxygen. <laughs> and there, you know, deep down beneath the seafloor, there are some fungi as well as bacteria and archaea, but it's really a microbially dominated ecosystem. And the geochemical and sort of geophysical forcing factors are quite extreme. Yeah, I mean, it makes my uh, trench look easy, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, 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 all, it's all relative, I suppose. But I read somewhere that the inhabitants of the deep biosphere are sometimes referred to as intraterrestrials. So please tell me that's a legitimate term and not just one made up by journalists. Because it's brilliant. No, it it, it is actually a, a term that's used to describe these organisms because yes. they are essentially living within the rocks beneath the, or the sediments yeah. beneath the seafloor surface. The thing that gets me when I ever think about this is what does a day in the life of a deep biosphere bacteria or intraterrestrial look like? Would that be better rephrased as what's a week in the life or a month in the life or a year in the life or a decade in the life? What are the time scales? The time scales vary a lot because there are places in the deep subsurface where the geochemical gradients drive more rapid metabolism. So turnover times might be, you know, months yeah. to years. In other places, 
realize that turnover times are as long as 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 millennia. And wow. there are some places that are organic poor, and there, you know, it's like turnover times can be thousands and thousands of years. So it's kind of hard to wrap your head around the fact that a microorganism, when you think about bacteria. You think about an organism that, that can divide every couple hours, right? Like E. coli yeah, and yeah. the lab itch. But these organisms are growing super slowly and dividing once every few hundred or thousand years. So they are adapted to this sort of life in the slow lane. It requires a very different approach when you're trying to, say, for example, measure rates of metabolism. Yeah. You know, when we work in shallow sediments, we measure rates over a 24-hour period. And in the deep subsurface, we might we might have to incubate samples for a month to get an itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny signal that we can measure. <laughs> it is hard to get your head around, isn't it? It's just so slow-moving. It really is, yeah. When people first started doing this, when someone first recognized that they've taken a sample from well beneath the seafloor and found this bacteria in this, I mean, was that a sort of eureka moment or was there like a long period of chin scratching going, is this thing viable was it's like is because it, it's it's moving on such slow time scales it's not like you just find a new fish you went hey there's a fish hey let's study the fish it must be like what is this thing yeah i mean you know we really have the right now it's called the international ocean discovery program the original program was the deep sea drilling project yeah. and you know the ocean discovery program etc lots of different names it changes every 10 years but you know, the U.S. and the Brits and the Japanese and the Chinese and the Germans and the French. It's an international effort to drill in the deep subsurface because it is an incredible undertaking. These cruises are two months long, yeah. these deep sea drilling cruises. And, it, they, you know, you work around the clock like you do on any cruise. But it wasn't until the Peru margin cruise, like 204, where microbiology became a, a big part of the the protocol. Typically, deep sea drilling was aimed at paleoclimate research. And, mm. you know, Bo Barker Jorgensen and, and others had this, this, you know, idea that I think probably it's fair to say a lot of people thought they were crazy that this deep subsurface had to be a really important microbial habitat and what regulates it and what kinds of processes go on and, you know, what are the organisms that live there and are they, you know, the same thing that we see in marine sediments? Or are they just, you know, buried and, and boring? What does it look like? And they they developed this microbiology program and it was an astonishingly productive cruise. And there have been many, many other legs now that have promoted microbiology efforts. And now it's a standard part of these deep ocean drilling expeditions to have, you know, a contingent of microbiologists on board, not just looking at community composition, but measuring activity and looking at how yeah. these organisms process geochemicals. But it's it's tricky because it's hard enough working in the shallow sediments of the deep sea because you're still working at high pressure if you're in two or three thousand meters of water or you know the bottom of the Mariana's Trench. You want to try and replicate the conditions that these organisms yeah. experience in their natural environment. Well when you're dealing with the deep subsurface, you've got temperature, you've got pressure, you've got chemical gradients, you've got all these things that you have to consider and vary to really try and assess what's regulating activity. So it becomes quite complicated, but it's really I mean it's just incredibly fascinating because sometimes there are things that are happening that you just didn't expect. 
So that brings me on to this next thing. We work in, in very deep waters normally in our day jobs, and we all often get asked, well, what relevance does this have to us? You know, are these things actually providing a measurable ecosystem service? And we were, we're always like, yes, because it's biotubating the seafloor, it's recycling, particular organic carbon coming down, and so on and so on. When you get right below the seafloor, what, what are they doing? What is, what is their ecosystem function? So everything in the ocean is connected. It's just connected on different timescales. Mm. And we are biased in the timescale of an expedition or a human existence, or we live in a world where timescales of days to weeks to months to years dominate our thinking, right? Yes. These organisms live in an entirely different world. They live in a world where things occur slowly, but very purposefully and driven by a lot of the regulatory agents that Processes happen in the pelagic water column. Processes happen in the bottom of the lake. Biogeochemistry is biogeochemistry. It doesn't matter where it is. It's just yeah. differences in scales and differences in dynamics. And we have to consider that when we say, okay, is this important or not? Everything is important. It's just important on a different time scale. And in places like whether it's the Gulf of California or the Peru margin or the middle of the Atlantic or the middle of the Pacific, processes are happening that recycle materials that were delivered to the seafloor. And that recycling may take 10,000 years or it may take 200 years. It depends on the conditions at the particular location, you know, organic matter loading, temperature, pressure, chemistry, like yeah. we talked about before. But it's all the same in terms of contributing to sort of modulating Earth's biogeochemical cycles. Because Biogeochemical cycles don't just happen on one time scale. They happen on a spectrum of scales. And this yeah. spectrum of scales dominates like things that impact climate. You know, if oil was just naturally moving through the seafloor ecosystem from deep reservoirs trickling out of the seafloor, being oxidized in the water column, et cetera, that natural cycle is, you know, a 50 million year time scale. But we short circuited by drilling for oil and burning fossil fuels. We've turned it into essentially yeah. a 200 year time cycle. Those different time scales, millions of years versus hundreds of years, you have biogeochemical yeah. dynamics that happen on those same sort of time scales, just long and short. The thing about it is that these long time scales, it's a massive area that's represented by these long time scales. So their impact, and they're not all operating on the same time scale, right? It's essentially such a big area and such an, an enormous ecosystem that yes, they have, they, they carry out critical functions for Earth's biogeochemistry because additively they matter, even in the time scale of a few years, because it's such yeah. a huge ecosystem. It's just amazing. It just brings in this whole other element to it of just like extraordinarily long time scales on top of all the other environmental conditions, which are considered to be more extreme than pretty much anything we're familiar with. But out of interest, yeah. how far under the seafloor has bacteria now been found or microbes, shall we say? Two kilometers subseafloor viable cells. Two kilometers. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. Is, is, is that a one-off, a particular special regional no. place? Or would you expect that to be anywhere? I think that's probably, I mean, that's not the exception. It's the rule. There have been, you know, microbes isolated. You know, there's also a terrestrial drilling program, right? And mm -hmm. there have been a lot of studies in, in deep gold mines, four kilometer yeah. plus. And there are ecosystems down there that, that are fueled by the energy drive from the radioisotope water. So wow. 
I love to just sit around spitballing what crazy process could exist under the Saturn or the other conditions. It's like thinking about life on other planets or on the moons yeah. of Saturn or Jupiter. What kinds of metabolisms could exist there and what's the analog on Earth? And that's a really incredibly interesting mental exercise because, you know, when you think about the radiolysis of water, that's like, who, who would have thought of that 10 years ago as a mechanism that could fuel microbial ecosystems? But now we know that this is a really common modality of, of microbial existence. And I think that once you get outside of the box of your ordinary thinking, that's when you can really sort of come up with some potentially interesting, if not crazy, ideas to pursue in, in some of these extreme habitats. Because there's just like the deep sea is, is largely unexplored. If you look at a map where we've drilled deep holes and where we've done detailed microbiological work, it's just a handful of sites. We've drilled a lot of yeah. holes for paleoclimate. We haven't yeah. drilled a lot of holes for microbiology. And, you know, it's really a frontier. Just like the deep sea is a frontier, the deep biosphere is an incredible frontier that has a lot to teach us about not just life on our planet, but life on other planets. The one, the one that got me was I was reading up on this a while back for, for something else we were doing, and it was one of the sort of earlier papers proposing this or at least having the first evidence that there are things living pretty far underneath the seafloor. And there were sentences in there along the lines of, I think we've just doubled the living space of planet Earth. Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. And those are, yes. those are no. statements you don't get very often, right? And it's really kind of astonishing. I mean, I, I teach a graduate level microbiology class and we spend a couple of weeks, often more, because it's a topic near and dear to my heart, talking about the deep biosphere. And the students during these lectures, I look out and half the time, you know, their jaws are just agape because yeah. they're just astonished. They can't believe that this is part of Earth's habitable space and that it was really only discovered and probed in any kind of detail in the past couple of decades. And in those two decades, we've had this genomics revolution, right? So in the beginning, you know, we were doing most probable number counts and, and stuff like that. And now we've got these yeah. sophisticated genomic tools that we can interrogate these communities. And we don't have to, to isolate them and grow them in the lab. We can reconstruct their genomes on our computers. You know, we can extract yeah. their DNA, sequence the whole community and reconstruct their genomes and look at, you know, all the potential metabolisms that exist in the community from the comfort of your desk. You don't have to go through the torture of trying to yeah. grow these organisms in the lab because they are really tough to grow. I mean, when you're talking about an organism that has a doubling time of 500 years, I mean, yeah. good Lord. <laughs> It's crazy to think about, but that's the beauty of the of the genomics. We can do it without doing that. What's the phylogeny of these strains? Do they form a sort of unique group within the deep biosphere, or are they related to oceanic ones or terrestrial ones, or where do they fit? Yes, yes, and yes. So there are some organisms that are unique to the deep biosphere, or are certainly more common in the deep biosphere. There is some overlap with you know shallow sediments and and deep subsurface sediments, and there's a lot of variability. Mm. It's not like the biogeography of fish populations. There's a lot more isolation in the deep yeah. subsurface because of the timescales that we're talking about. I mean, really, I like to think of it as it's really tectonic timescales that these systems yeah. are turning over, right? It's plate tectonics that's driving it. So it doesn't really align with 
thinking about how, you know, by geographical patterns. Um, but there are methanogens, you know, the methane producing archaea are super yeah. important in the deep biosphere. Fermenters are super important and they're fairly common organisms, so to speak, that, that are fermenting organic matter. But they have to have, they have to be able to tolerate, you know, extreme temperatures, extreme pressures, et cetera. And that sort of sets them apart from their, you know, terrestrial or shallow subsurface cousins. But the sweets of the metabolic potential of these communities is fairly similar to what we see in other places. I would say that methane plays a much bigger role in a lot of these habitats because methanogens are tough. You know, archaea yeah. are tough in general, but methanogens are really tough. And I mean that literally because their membranes are tough as nails yeah. and they can withstand high temperatures and high pressures and all kinds of other things that you want to throw at them. They're just tough. And methane is a super energy rich compound and they fuel an ecosystem that organisms that consume methane can benefit from the presence of these of these methanogens. But there are bacteria, there are archaea, you know, some of the oldest archaea, the Asgard archaeota, you know, you you've probably heard of these these Loki archaeota, which are believed to be, yeah. you know, ancestral to the eukaryotes. Those were discovered in a deep sample. And the Asgards are just people are just beginning to really probe for these these organisms in deep biosphere samples. In the Gulf of California, Asgards are super, super abundant. And, you know, we're just beginning to sort of tease apart the, the metabolic potential of these of this particular yeah. group of archaea. You know, they've only been known for less than a decade. So we've got a lot to learn about what they're capable of yeah. doing and what their role is in sort of the larger microbial ecosystem. But I'm, I'm quite certain, too, you know, just based on the genomic data, data that we have, there are organisms that exist down there that are, that just sort of defy the imagination. If you just sort of look at some of the, you know, the sequencing runs and the metagenome assembled genome, these mags, some of these organisms just, they're, they're very, very different from other, you know, known organisms. And I think yeah. it's fair to say that the more sequencing we do in the deep biosphere, the more branches that we're going to be adding to the microbial tree of life. What about multicellular life? Go beyond the archaea and the bacteria. What about actually multicellular life, animals themselves? I mean, there, there has been some pretty surprisingly deep specimens found. Are these something you would expect to find more of as, as a, maybe a, perhaps a greater volume of, of material is brought up and had a look at? Or are these just rare deep diving or deep burrowing, deep surviving organisms? I think there's probably more down there than we realize. It's a, absolutely a sampling issue. And the way that these deep cores are drilled, any kind of animal that wasn't just perfectly aligned with the drill bit is going to just get annihilated. Yeah. So we would never be able to properly sample them. I mean, when you get box cores, and actually the Germans have have, have these X-ray systems like cat scans on their boats, and you know you can look at deburrowing fauna yeah, with yeah. these X-rays and these cat scans because they bring these wide bore cores up, and then they just run them through the machine. And be like, oh, look at that! There's some deburrowing worms in there, or shrimp. So I I think it's unfortunate that in the U.S. fleet we don't have any cool toys like that. We have some cool toys, but we don't have that we don't have that kind of capability. Yeah. And I think as that kind of capability becomes more available, maybe through philanthropy, then we can get more yeah. data like that because there's almost certainly critters that that live a lot deeper than we think they do. It's just really tough to to sample them without destroying them using the tools and techniques that yeah. we have in hand right now. So one last question, what's the next stage of this? Where is this research going? 
So I feel like, you know, there's the, we're at a bit of a crossroads right now. Just a week or two ago, the U.S. National Science Foundation announced that they are not going to replace the Joides Resolution. That's the drilling ship in the, in the U.S. fleet. And, you know, the Chinese have drilling ship. But that's really going to impede progress if we don't have a replacement for the JR. And I think there's still discussions underway as to, you know, maybe maybe that will happen. But right now there's no commitment for making it happen. And, you know, it's a huge, vibrant community in the U.S. and and abroad. And we need another ship because we've got a lot of of work to do. And it's it's really important. And it's, you know, and it's not just paleoclimate. When you think about these organisms living under these extreme conditions, I mean, the first place my mind goes is natural products. These organisms are incredible resources for antibiotics, antivirals, potentially antifungals, all kinds of interesting natural products, treatments for diseases, you name it. I mean, there's just, there's got to be effort put towards looking at these communities. And now we can do that with the metagenomes. We don't need isolates. Isolates are nice to have, but we can actually mine metagenomes for potential antibiotics, antivirals, et cetera, natural products of various sorts. So we can use those data to advance humanity in ways that weren't really imaginable even five years ago. But I don't think that's you know all there is to it. You mentioned life away from Earth. The deep biosphere is, is an obvious analog for looking at weird metabolisms and organisms that we might find you know, in another planet. I mean, the radiolysis of water example that I gave before, that's a, that's a really interesting, wacky metabolism that could certainly be important on extrasolar planets and other worldly habitats. So yeah. I really wish that NASA would get into this game because there's an obvious, you know, not just Mars, but you name it, there's yeah. there's lots of potential targets out there for which the deep sea and, and the deep biosphere are good analogs. So I wish there was a way that NASA could pick up the tab to fund some of this sort of work. I feel like, you know, we're at the cusp of making some really big discoveries yeah. because we're just getting to the point where we've drilled enough sites where micro- microbial studies have been carried out, that we can start to see patterns and we can start to see trends and we can start saying, okay, this is really one of the key, key drivers of these communities. And that really is that variable that's not so important. Yeah. But you know, to get to that point where you have a better, more complete understanding, you've just got to have a lot of data. And you've got to have a lot of data from, from disparate habitats. And we're not there yet. We're not even close. Yeah. If only there were some really mega rich billionaires with an interest in space kicking around, you know? It seems like there's so much money going into space, but not so much in terms of uh, understanding extreme environments and how that links together. I was talking to Don Walsh about this a couple of weeks ago. You know, I saw Uh him in San Diego, you know, and he, he said to me, he said, you know, I told somebody back in the early 70s that the problem with lack of funding for deep sea research, it's public relations. We just aren't good marketers. We don't market what we do very well. And he's absolutely right. Mm. You know, it's messaging and marketing. Yeah. And that's one of the great things about this podcast because it gets a message out to way beyond the deep sea science community. And that's the kind of messaging that we have to work on because we don't tend to self-promote very well. We don't do public relations, scientists. And we don't market, you know, it's like the Chasing Coral movie and, you know, Richard Beavers, who's the British guy who did marketing for a career before he started, 
working on coral reefs and got really interested in coral bleaching. And the success of that movie wasn't just the storytelling. It was the way that they, you know, they marketed the story and it made it so much more successful yeah. and compelling because it was it was designed to be the message was clear and concise. Yeah. And I think we could we would be doing ourselves a big service if the deep sea science community would become more adept at science communication and learn a little bit of these skill sets that are involved in PR and marketing. I mean, I'm not talking about self-promotion. I'm talking about promoting the deep sea and the relevance of the deep biosphere and the relevance yeah. of the ocean because some of us do it. I mean, you you do it very well. Thank you. But most people don't do it well and we've got to all get better at it. Yeah, we, we've got projects running here and it's something we've discussed a lot on the podcast and something we things we're writing about more and more is, is the language we use. It's not about me or whoever is at the center of it. I mean, you've got to take the scientist out of the center of the story because, you know, you're, you're talking about the deep sea or a particular aspect of that. But other scientific disciplines probably have some of the same issues that we have. But certainly, I, I think the way we communicate deep sea science is really, really, truly awful. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just the wording's all wrong. It's always over-sensationalized, but kind of in an empty way. It, you're right, it's the marketing. I think we need a almost a corporate take on it yeah. rather than just a bunch of people who who really like it and think everyone else should really like it too. Great. Well, let's dwell upon the fact that deep biosphere is absolutely, totally, truly and utterly fascinating. And it really does <laughs> melt my head in terms of temperature, pressure, oxygen, time scales. That really does get me. But in the meantime, man, it's been an absolute joy speaking to you today. And thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Alan. It was great to be here. Really enjoyed it. And that was a pressurized version of one of our full-length episodes. If you enjoyed that and you would like to hear the full-length episode, just match the episode numbers in the feed. Thanks for listening. We'll deep see you next time, and I hope you see you already.